Durham is a community with a deep-seated history, once the site of a thriving black community while simultaneously building a prestigious university that wouldn't allow these communities to attend. As a black student at this university, exactly 60 years after the first black students were admitted to the university, I felt lots of conflict over being in a space initially designed to keep my ancestors out. Throughout the year, I've learned a lot about the history of the black community, which has helped to empower me and reinforce my belonging in this space by hearing the struggles and triumphs of my community. This passing on of history is so important, not only for other black students, but the entirety of the Duke community. If we want to make a change in the world, we must first understand the history that shapes our own backyard. In this episode, you will hear of the past and present of Duke and Durham in an attempt to try to pop the bubble and create an open dialogue for the importance of Black history within the community. The Durham community was not the place we see it reflected as today. The sounds of the train and cars on the highway that have become hallmarks of the East Campus soundscape are landmarks for the hardship that struck the black community in the 1960s through the creation of the Durham Freeway. The Haytai community, which thrived in Durham, was home to prosperity for the black community from the late 1800s to the 1960s. This space served as Black Wall Street, hallmarking the progress and success the community could achieve even amidst a deeply segregated South. All of that was until a massive wave of infrastructure improvement swept the Durham area, pushing residents out of the community to make way for the Durham Freeway. Almost simultaneously, Duke was going through massive shifts as well, a shift dissected by Duke alumni Ted Siegel in his novel Point of Reckoning. Ted graduated from Duke in 1977. He recently retired from a private law practice and returned to the study of student activism at Duke, culminating in his novel, which was published in 2021. It provides an immense amount of insight into the racial history of Duke, sparks a few questions on what this means for the climate at Duke today. And just once again, thank you so, so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, so I think first off, could you just kind of set the stage for those who maybe don't know a ton about the history of Duke and, you know, North Carolina at this time? What was going on and what was kind of the climate at Duke like right before integration? Sure. Okay. Well, um, Starting with Durham, Durham was uh, obviously a, a southern city that um, up until really 1963 uh, observed all of the rules, mores, and laws that defined segregation. And segregation applied in virtually every area of community public life where black people and white people could come into contact. It was everything from, um, you know, uh, schools, movie theaters, churches, cemeteries, just the list goes on and on. And so there was this separation that segregation created between black and white. Um, and, and that was the prevailing racial tone uh, in Durham, um, again, up until 1963. Um, in 1963, um, the civil rights movement uh, began in earnest in Durham. It, it originally had, had come to Durham in the early 60s, just after the Greensboro sit-ins, um, but it really became more robust and more uh, effective in 1963 and it was really not until the summer of 1963 when 
a number of public accommodations in Durham uh, were were desegregated after you know massive protests by the black community in Durham, white supporters in Durham, and some uh, white students and faculty supporters um, at Duke. So um, Duke, uh, oh, and 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 on the other side of of Jim Crow, you had the Durham black community, and the Durham black community was um, a very deeply rooted, uh, well-established community where faith and uh, school and family were the anchors of uh, community life. Um, Durham had a high school called Hillside High School, which was just uh, legendary uh, in the black community. It, it produced generation after generation of, of successful students. and. It was a world where if you acted up in school, your your teacher might spank you, you would get home. By the time you got home, your parents would have heard uh, what, what had happened and they would spank you. And then when you got to church, if the pastor had heard, he would spank you. So all groups were working together to produce these just remarkable youngsters. So um, Duke was a, a, a reflection of Durham. Duke was uh, created um, in um, uh, 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 1924 when James B. Duke uh, endowed uh, the Duke Endowment and allocated a substantial portion of the Duke Endowment to uh, fund the creation of Duke, or put better, the transformation of, of Trinity College which was a small college located where East Campus is now into uh, Duke University. He gave them, in today's dollars, a billion or $2 billion. And with that money, Duke kind of rose out of the ground, really, not quite overnight, but within about 10 or 15 years. But what's so important to keep in mind for the story is that you know Duke didn't just come into existence uh, the way it did for no reason. Duke was a historically white institution, which means that it was a uh, institution that was created uh, exclusively by white people for the exclusive benefit of white people. So every attribute of Duke at its founding, um, the architecture, the courses, the food in the dining hall, the pep song, the uh, sorority traditions, the fraternity traditions, uh, sermons in the church, every attribute of Duke that, that, that was created when Duke was created was uh, uh, created with the tastes and needs and requirements and habits and culture of, of white people in mind. And Duke was um, fully segregated. Um, every aspect of Duke life was segregated from the athletic uh, activities to the classroom. There were no black students at Duke. The administration, there were no black administrators. The faculty, there were no black faculty. The dorms, you name it, Duke uh, reflected Durham in that segregation and all of the norms of Jim Crow um, shaped how uh, blacks and whites related to each other uh, on the Durham campus. The, the key thing, though, to remember also is that um, 
the vast majority of Duke's non-academic employees um, who were terribly poorly paid and uh, had no benefits, had no uh, rights to protest any action that had been taken against them, they were all from, from Durham. And so you had this connection to the Durham Black community, but it wasn't through Duke uh, in, in, its, in, its, in its academic realm, it was from these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of workers uh, that cut the grass and made the food and did all these other things, cleaned the rooms. Um, you know, they were all, all from Durham. So there was this connection to Durham. It just was among the non-academic employees, not, uh, not administration. So is that where the idea of Duke within the community being called the plantation comes from? Exactly. That is exactly correct. I mean, if you, if you, if you read about or if you look at the conditions under which these workers worked, um, I mean, even by 1958, 1959, maids who cleaned the rooms, or they called it prepared the rooms of undergraduate men uh, six days a week. I mean, they were being paid 65 cents an hour, right? And 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 um, this was in line with how the janitors were paid and the other uh, service workers were paid. They, they were paid at wages significantly below the poverty line and significantly below the amount that comparable workers were being paid at state schools like NC State or, or Carolina. And so um, the, working at Duke for these people was um, called in a black newspaper at the time, like peonage. It was really, um, you worked at the, at the pleasure of, the, of, of Duke. And um, if Duke didn't like you, even if you had worked there for 35 years, they would fire you. You had no recourse. Um, Oliver Harvey, who became the labor leader that changed a lot of these dynamics, said that he had never previously worked at a place that was so racist. Mm -hmm. And um, it was because of this attitude and this set of behaviors that Duke began to be regarded as and described as uh, the plantation. And so what is it that kind of sparks integration on campus and what did that look like for the black students that were kind of that first class so duke uh, uh desegregated just just as an aside um desegregation means changes to laws and rules that permit uh, black students to inhabit the physical space of white students um integration would suggest to me and, and to many a much broader cultural shift mm -hmm. in which black students and white students would really find community together. And at least as of 1963, I think it's most appropriately described as desegregation, not integration. And one of the questions for Duke today is whether integration has in fact ever occurred over the last 60 years. But putting that little, little uh, nugget aside, um, Duke uh, desegregated because it had to. 
Uh, Duke was established with uh, great ambitions to become one of the leaders in education in the country and in the world. And it was making slow but steady progress in that direction uh, between 1924 when it was established in the early 60s. The problem for Duke became that by the early 60s, the federal government and other national funding organizations, the Ford Foundation and others, they had begun to say that if, if these Southern schools didn't desegregate, they would no longer be eligible for government contracts or government funding. So Duke, which, which, which aspired to be this national research university, literally saw the risk emerging that, that, the, that the pipeline of funds and projects that would allow it to keep progressing would be cut off. And so although some members of the board uh, had moral uh, concerns, a number of people, many people in the Duke community had moral concerns. The reason desegregation occurred when it did was because Duke had to, for financial reasons, and to preserve its ongoing opportunity to become a better uh, and better school. Um, people at Duke, uh, I quote them in my book, you know, wish wish it had been different, wish it had been on moral grounds, but um, it really it really wasn't. It was a primarily pragmatic uh, financial decision. So. Um, when it decided to desegregate, it, it needed to go out and find uh, students to be the first black students at Duke. And um, these students uh, came out of communities, black communities, very similar to Durham. They came out of uh, segregated communities where everything in the community was, was poured into them. Uh, education was valued above all else. Um, uh, and, and everyone was working together to help raise uh, uh, these youngsters. I mean, it was really just this extraordinarily um, supportive, nurturing uh, environment. Um, and oddly, in some ways, the Black students never really encountered much racism because they operated within the protection of this loving, uh, supportive black community. So the kids that came to Duke in the first um, classes were from the South, were from segregated black communities, and were simply the best and brightest you could find anywhere. They were kids who uh, could have gotten into any school in the country uh, on their merits. Um, and they just had been raised up by their uh, families and by their communities to be ready when um, uh, desegregation in higher education occurred and the opportunity of going to a place like Duke was uh, made available to them. The kids, for the most part, they all wanted to go to HBCUs because they knew they would be happy at HBCUs, right? But they, they had a sense of duty uh, to, to their race and to their families they went to Duke. And so they landed at Duke um, in a place that, that had done nothing whatsoever, literally nothing whatsoever to prepare for their arrival. 
Duke did not um, do anything to uh, investigate who these kids were, what uh, the communities they came from were like, what their strengths were, what their weaknesses were, what additional support they would need. Duke didn't visit any other schools that had desegregated. Um, Duke believed that simply by allowing these kids to attend, it had satisfied its racial obligation uh, and, and it could move on. And, and so it never occurred to these white administrators and others uh, because they never made an attempt to learn that there were attributes in these kids' lives and in their communities and in their culture that were very uh, precious and important to them and that they did not want to have to give up as the price they paid for attending uh, a Duke University. Um, and and so, so these, these wonderful youngsters were parachuted into Duke and Duke had done nothing uh, to prepare for them. So they encountered racism at every turn. They encountered uh, deans that would tell them, you know, you're not good enough to be a doctor, don't even consider that. They had uh, racial epithets shouted at them. They were graded unfairly. Um, you just can go on and on and on. And, and uh, um, students would come back to their dorm rooms and someone would have scrawled, you know, N-word, go home. Um, it, it was just a, a very... Um, not across the board. There were some students and faculty who, 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 who welcomed these kids. But for the most part, the school just felt like we let you in. You know, what more do you need? And as long as the kids weren't protesting, the administrators uh, assumed everything was going just fine because it was going just fine for them, right? Um, so the initial years of desegregation were just absolutely, um, 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 they, were, they were just searingly difficult for, for the vast majority of kids. Not, not all of them. Some of them came and had the social moves and, 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 and were able to could just, just fit right in uh, to the mainstream of Duke. Um, um, Mimi Rubin, Wilhelmina Rubin is a good example of that type of person. But the majority had a very difficult time. They couldn't find community within the um, mainstream Duke community. The people they connected with were the black non-academic employees who were just like their parents. And those employees took these kids under their wing and brought them into uh, Durham churches, Durham families, black Durham restaurants. It was the black non-academic employees who embraced these kids, connected with these kids. And it was within the Durham black community that these kids um, were able to find uh, a community in the early years of desegregation when there was no community on offer. Uh, at Duke. Is this the kind of stuff you were looking for? Yes, entirely. This okay. is also <laughs> helpful. 
<laughs> so all right you mentioned that because they weren't protesting administration didn't really think of it being an issue so can you kind of talk about the allen building takeover and what does begin to happen amongst the black community as these protests and things become prevalent to the white more, administration more prominent well so, so um you know what the black students were looking for is what any uh, group would want the black students i mean they wanted to be able to attend duke but not at the price of giving up uh all of the cultural and uh, social uh and academic uh, anchors that that had had made them successful and, and happy in the past and so not initially as much, but starting really in 1966, 1967, there became enough black students at Duke that they could begin uh, to really talk to each other in community. Uh, initially, there were so few black students um, and they were spread over East and West campus and they weren't all in the same dorm. There really was a divide and conquer mentality among administration. Uh, that each of these kids was experiencing this situation, you know, by themselves. And it was just extraordinarily hard to come to grips with what the heck was going on. But by 1967, there was a critical mass and they began meeting. And as they began meeting and talking and learning that they shared common problems, they began to realize the problems they were having weren't their fault. The problems they were having were as a result of Duke's absolute failure to make any attempts to create an edu educational environment uh, that would work for them. And so in 1967, the first issue was the, camp the university's use of off-campus segregated facilities for uh, social events. It's hard to fathom now, but Duke desegregated in 1963 and even by 1967 was still permitting fraternities, sororities, and other groups populated by students to have social events at segregated off-campus facilities where Duke Black students were not permitted to attend even if they wanted to. I mean, that's just... It just shows the, the scope of the uh, um, blindness, the limited view these, these um, administrators had as to what their responsibilities were and what the experience of the black students were. So, so starting with that, the students began to talk more and more among themselves. Um, there were a handful of, of meetings with administrators in which concerns were presented um and nationally uh black act black campus activism the black campus movement was on the rise and so oh and in durham there was a very well-developed black uh, community of of activists uh duke uh, durham in many ways at that time was like atlanta is now it's really kind of a a center of black thought and, and black life. And so there were elders in the Durham community who had been through protests who were available as mentors and sounding boards and, 
and people available to help them think through their options. And so after developing a list of concerns and seeing the university unable to respond to them in a way that, that the kids thought was um, sufficiently uh, effective and uh, respectful and, and acknowledged uh, their, their rights to have the same quality of Duke experience that the white kids had, uh, they decided in the um, beginning of 1969 that the only option they had to, to draw attention to the urgency of their demands and to trigger a real negotiation of issues where administrators wouldn't just delay, create a new committee, but would actually respond and respond quickly, the only way to force that was to uh, take, take a building. And so um, this was not a unanimous view among black students. Black students at Duke were as diverse in their politics and their uh, level of risk tolerance and, and attitudes um, as, as any other student group would be, but, but increasingly the majority of, of the black students were persuaded that a building takeover would, would be uh, uh, a step that, that would draw attention to their demands and, and enforce a resolution. So on the morning of, of uh, February 13th, 1969, in this extraordinarily well-orchestrated uh, action, uh, black students um, uh, pulled up uh, in front of Allen Building and in under two minutes had secured the uh, bursar's office and the registrar's office um, and declared that space within Allen Building uh, Malcolm X University. Um, and they came uh, prepared with, with food and water and other uh, supplies or what they anticipated would be a potentially protracted um, um, uh, sit-in, like multi-day, uh, because they uh, assumed that um, once they had taken this step, administrators would see how deeply they felt and how uh, much of a crisis they would in, and there would ensue some discussions over some number of days that would lead to a resolution of issues. Um, that's not what happened. Um, uh, and, and, and as a result, as a result of the way the administrators responded to this, um, uh, police, National Guard were called to campus uh, and uh, the students left uh, the, 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 the Allen building um, in the late afternoon seconds before the police uh, arrived um, and thereafter there followed this uh, basically police riot on the main quad where uh, white students um, and other supporters of the black students basically got into a, a battle with police with um, tear gas being um, um, shot all over the place and um, 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 19 or 20 uh, people hospitalized. Um, 
I can talk more about uh, sort of how the administration perceived the kids in Allen Building, but because one of your questions was how did the response differ between the vigil and, and the Allen Building takeover, I figured I'd talk about that topic there, but if you want me to talk about it now, I'm happy to. No, yeah, you can talk about it now. That'd be great. Yeah, okay. So, so, um, so, um, uh, Duke administrators had never really uh, fully embraced, uh, uh, in, in my opinion, these black students as um, bona fide um, uh, members of the uh, Duke community, right? Uh, this Duke community that you always talk about. Uh, they really, even by um, 1967, 68, were viewed really almost as interlopers or intruders. Uh, and so when uh, the kids, when the, when the Black Afro-American society occupied the Allen building, it wasn't perceived as our students um, crying out for help. It was perceived as further confirmation that these students were hot-headed militants who really just wanted to make trouble and weren't sincere about the substance of their demands. And so it took about an hour uh, after uh, a group of administrators gathered on the second floor of Allen Building. The students were on the first floor. The administrators were in a conference room on the second floor. It took about an hour until the decision was made that the students would be given a deadline uh, uh, to vacate the building. Uh, they'd be given one hour. Uh, they'd be read a, 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 a basically a, um, you know, they, they, would, they would be given, um, a, a told they had one hour to vacate the building. And if, if they did not vacate the building, that, that police uh, would be brought to bear uh, to forcibly uh, uh, extract them. Um, and so uh, you can see in this moment how divergent what the black students thought and hoped and what the administrators perceived had become. Um, the kids just wanted to be treated as members of the Duke community. The uh, administrators saw them as um, just outlaws, basically, radicals, militants, people who just were not serious and were really just just trying to make trouble. Um, and that, um, uh, that, that, that decision that, that the administrators made, uh, it took them until early afternoon to get around to drafting the ultimatum. Uh, but they drafted the ultimatum and they gave it to the students. And then an hour, hour and a half, two hours later, the police marched toward campus. Um, and it was really um, a, a miracle in many ways that the kids were able to escape um, before the police arrived. Um, because had they not, given what played out at other schools where there were confrontations between black students and, 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 and police, you know, some of these kids could well, you know, not have survived uh, the encounter. Um, 
I sent you a, a list, I sent you all this stuff, which you, you know, you probably think of when is this guy going to stop sending me stuff, but I sent you this interview I did with these three activists. If you just watch the last 20 minutes or so, uh, they begin to talk about what would have happened if they had not left Allen building when they did and how the world would have been different if it hadn't benefited from the incredible contributions all of these students made and all of their kids and grandchildren are making uh, as they went through their lives. It's a, it's a really emotional moment that, that I think you'd find interesting. So anyway, is that, um, is that enough on that topic? Yes, that's, that's great. Okay. And could you talk a teeny bit just about what, the aftermath of the takeover was kind of on campus as the years kind of progressed. Did things change at all because of it or what? Well, let me, I'll just, just for you, I'll, I'll, I'll preface what I say by saying I am absolutely the world's expert on the racial history of Duke between 1963 and 1969, right? I wrote a book about it. I know a lot about it. I, 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 well, I mean, I was at Duke from 73 to 77. Uh And that was just four years after the Allen Building takeover. And what happened really was pretty quickly, this um, belief coalesced that uh, Duke had had among white people, this belief coalesced among white people that Duke had had these racial problems, that there was this really unfortunate uh, encounter uh, at the Allen building. But as a result of that encounter, the Duke president at the time, Douglas Knight was fired and the liberal North Carolina governor, Terry Sanford was brought in. And that Duke had essentially uh, uh, resolve uh, for the most part its racial problems. That that is what I I I think I believe, uh, um, and that is what I think most uh, people and uh, white people at Duke between uh, seventy three and seventy seven uh, believed uh, and wanted to believe. And it frankly, it's to to um, poke holes in that. Uh, narrative that is one of the primary reasons I wrote um, A Point of Reckoning. I mean, the, the, the reality is that while, and again, this is, well, the reality is that while much changed at Duke over the years, uh, and it's impossible to argue that there's been uh, no, no progress because there has been progress, the reality is that the same types of issues persisted over the years and in many respects um, uh, black students at Duke now will tell you uh, continue to the present day in the uh, in, 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 in the in the uh, uh, on the various anniversaries of the Allen building takeover 
the thirtieth anniversary, most most particularly um, uh, black students who came back uh, prepared a list of demands, which were essentially the demands they had made of the school in 1969, and they checked off which had been met and which had not been met, and in in their rendering you know, few, if any of them had been met. So um, I believe race is the core issue for Duke. It was then. I believe um, inclusion remains uh, the core issue for Duke. I mean, what, what a lot of people um, think uh, is that because Duke is now diverse, it's inclusive, right? Yeah, I mean, Duke touts justifiably that it's now majority minority, right? But what, what I say is that just gives a larger number of groups to feel alienated from the mainstream of the university. Uh, it's, it's not just, uh, it's not just uh, the black kids. Um, and so Duke has been unable to create an institution where students from diverse background can find community and students from diverse backgrounds continue to have to seek ways outside of the, the mainstream of their Duke experience to find that community. And, and in many respects, I, I talked to Adrienne Lynn Smith, who's a professor you should take. She's a history professor. She's fantastic. I talked to her civil rights class and, and the black students in her civil rights class told me that a number of them continue to go to the black churches in Durham because it's in those black churches that they can find the community at, uh, uh, in Durham that they are unable to connect with uh, at Duke. I mean, it's, it's been so uh, fascinating how my book has been, been received. Um, white and black people read a totally different book. White people appreciate that it's this uh, history of, of a troubled time. White people think that it's well-sourced, which it is, that it's fair, which I tried to be. And some white people who read it, it's quite shattering because they never uh, knew any of this stuff. Some of them were there at the time and never knew any of this stuff. And it really does prompt in some people a soulful reckoning. But in many people who read it, if not the majority of people who read it, there's much more of a kind of an abstract reaction to that, which was, wow, thank you uh, for, 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 for all that. Thank you for your contributions to Duke. Thank you for teaching us this important history. It's sort of read and then kind of put in a box that this is a story that's relevant to 60 years ago. Important to know but relevant 60 years ago. Black people who read my book 
and I've, I've talked to alums across the decades and students and administrators now say, that is me. They see themselves in the stories and the challenges uh, that these, these, these black students in the 60s uh, encountered. And they see their experience with Duke administrators um, um, in, in, in many respects being similar to what the black students in the 60s uh, encountered. Um, I, I, I've been to programs where I've spoken and, and people will come in and say, you know, page 35, that's me. Page 104, that's me. Uh, it's very, very um, uh, uh, poignant. But, but we're still at a point where this gap between how um, black students are experiencing Duke and white administrators and other administrators are experiencing Duke is, is so separate that um, when, when they read my book, they're just, they're just reading basically a different book. Um, so, uh, so, so again, I mean, in many respects, I've been, when I was writing the book, I was worried that Duke would not permit it to be published. Um, the book is published by Duke Press. Um, because it's published by Duke Press, and it's about Duke, Duke Press had to give Duke administration a heads up that I was um, uh, writing a book uh, about Duke history. I, I thought when they catch wind of this, my God, they're just going to say, what are you guys, crazy? You know, we don't want a book like this floating around that puts us in a bad light. It's an instruction manual for future activists. I mean, nothing good can come out of this book. Uh, to my surprise, um, you know, in many respects, the book has been embraced uh, by Duke. It was the freshman read, uh, Caitlin, as you notice, uh, noted. It, uh, I've talked to all sorts of alumni groups, uh, 180 people in the Department of Alumni Affairs were given a copy of the book and we had a, a, a conversation. I was introduced by President Price, right? Um, <laughs> but again, you just never know to what extent is what I'm writing in the book really sinking in and to what extent is um, reading my book and doing a program on my book a chance for a department or group to check the box that they've grappled with Duke's history. Mm -hmm. It's just been absolutely fascinating for me. No, I'm sure. And a couple different points here. I think, first yeah. of all, the list that you mentioned of their demands from 1969, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because that's actually how I got in contact with Valerie. My, like, class took a trip to the archives. Oh, yeah? And they gave us a bunch of different boxes, and the one that really drew me was, like, black and minority histories at Duke. Yes, yes. And there was the initial publication of that list in one of the black magazines. Yeah. And it was fascinating to just kind of look at it and be like, wow, like, there are some things on here that 60 years later still haven't 
been reckoned with. Yeah. And so that was, that's just like a really interesting point to make. In yeah. terms of kind of one of my last couple questions, um, in an article that the Chronicle published when you um, published your book, you kind of talked about how one of the main takeaways you hope readers took was that though there can be kind of a reckoning with this idea in order to truly make change there has to be some idea of financial investment to push the ideas of diversity and inclusion and so kind of what are your thoughts on duke's current huge push for dei through the focus of you know books like yours and trainings for staff and faculty and even students rather than maybe more concrete ideas like endowed scholarships for minorities or even you know putting money to fix the Mary Lou Williams Center for Black Culture that's been flooded for a year that they haven't really done anything about. Right. Just kind of what are your thoughts on that? Well, again, well, let me just say by way, by way of background, um, you know, I was a, a corporate lawyer uh, for 35 years at one of the world's biggest law firm and firms. And I, I didn't, I did not understand any of the stuff that I've been telling you for the last 45 minutes. Um, I was viewed as uh, progressive and liberal, and I wrote big checks to, or checks, not necessarily big, to the right organizations. But I had not even begun to come to terms with my own blinders, my own privilege. And so so a lot of, of what I'm telling you, everything of what I'm telling you is, is, is stuff that I have learned as a result of this, uh, this work. Um, so if you start at, at this moment we talked about a little while ago, 1924, you've got this institution that is um, created by white people, uh, for white people. By definition, 100% of the financial and human resources of that organization were devoted to meeting the needs of a certain group of people, a certain cohort. Um, white students, faculties, administrators, and trustees. If if you are going to um, if you are going to progress, and if you are going to progress and sincerely um, change your priorities, right? You're going to stop being. Uh, this segregated school that is 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 created for a certain group of people. If you're gonna, if you're gonna move toward inclusion, with all of the many things that entails. I mean, the pie is only a hundred percent. There needs to be some reallocation of resources from the priorities that 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 shape Duke. Uh, 60 years ago or shape Duke 100 years ago or shape Duke three years ago, there just has to be some reallocation of resources to put against these new priorities that you now say you have, right? I mean, it's just, it's just a math problem. And, and again, I was in corporate America and I was in law firms and I, I know what it looks like when initiative when an initiative has priority in an organization, you meet about it all the time, you you involve your best people, you set goals, and you invest in it, right? That's what it looks like. The question is how invested 
is Duke in uh, President Price's uh, anti-racism program. And um, I, I think that, you know, the jury is still out on that. Um, but I believe we'll know uh, he and Duke are serious when we can see that this value, this priority, which Duke now says it embraces, gets the priority and the attention and the focus that other priorities um, uh, garner. And so, so it's, it, 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 I don't understand how priorities that cost money can shift unless there's a parallel shift of, of resources. And, and, and again, I'm not into the weeds of how Duke is spending its money, but the question I would want to know the answer to is, you know, show me where in your financials you're making this huge investment you need to make to effectuate this change you say is important. And, and again, time will tell, but um, that's the question I think we all need to be asking and, um, and, and that's what we need to be pushing Duke toward. So yeah, I, I just see it as, I just really see it as in many respects as so obvious, even though um, it's very hard to have a conversation in those those terms because of all of the, the complexities of how people communicate and stuff like that. Does the adoption of like your book as the first year common experience, I'm a first year student, you know, coming in and seeing like, wow, this is what Duke wants us to read before we get here. It was definitely like a powerful moment for me. Yeah, what, tell me, I would, oh boy, tell me how, tell me about that experience of, of getting the book and, and like, did you read it over the summer? Did you actually read it? <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, you read it. So what was that? So tell me about your, yeah, how did that land with you? So as a black student coming into Duke, it, it really was just so exciting to kind of see like that the university was acknowledging this point of their history, but coming sure. into Duke, I had no idea that there really was a history to even acknowledge. Sure. I mean, I guess like I know knew Duke was in the South and obviously, you know, desegregation was a thing that happened at Southern universities, but it wasn't something that was on the forefront of, of my brain. And of so course. kind of getting to dive into that was super interesting. And then I was fortunate enough to be on quite a few programs while I was here. My pre-orientation program this year focused a lot on like the Haytai community. And then I yeah. got to dive into Haytai through a black student group within like my first month here. Wow. And so I think that was really powerful for me. And so I, it was just so interesting to kind of see the ways that for someone who was looking for it, Duke was solving a lot of my problems and yeah. like questions. But for so many other students, it's just kind of this ignorance of like, I didn't read the book and like it was never involved in a program that pushed me to kind of understand Durham. And so there's so many people that still don't kind of get it, which is right. so so crazy to me in right. a way. So how do you, but, but you've, you've said that um, as a black student at Duke, you are aware and, and probably whether it's funding 
for Mary Lou or the number of uh, uh, professors of, of color, or I'm sure you could list any number of ways that with all the positives, this is the thing, lots has changed. There is no question lots has changed, but I'm sure you can, can kind of see uh, work that still needs to be done. How do you put together in your own mind that this school that has made uh, somewhat limited progress on issues of race, picked this book and sent it out to 1800 freshmen. I mean, I just couldn't, like, how do you, how do you think about that? I think at times it feels so contradictory to the actions that I watch Duke make every day because you do send out this book, but then the space for black students on campus has been flooded for nine months and you've fixed every other conjoining space around it. Their big auditorium has been fixed. It was fixed a month after the flooding, but this space for black students on campus is still not occupable. And it's just so interesting to think, you know, we have a black student invitational for prospective freshmen that Duke was trying to shut down this year and like wasn't helping to put the funding into, but then you're sending out this book. And so it's just, it's so interesting to think about all the contradictions that go on between the different elements of administration and how they enact their day to day versus, you know, the image that they love to push out there. Yeah, no, no. I mean, part of part of what I I, I talk about in the uh, 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 end of my book is is the capacity of these racial attitudes to shape shift, right? I mean, um, I mean, the problem at Duke uh, in the '60s and the problem at Duke now is not that there are a bunch of avowed racists running around; it's that you've got a bunch of well-intentioned, quote unquote, good people who for every different sort of reason under the sun don't make this uh, a priority, right? Um, and, and so there is this kind of shape-shifting character where sure you'll have this avowedly racist, uh, venom-spouting uh, trustee, but, but he or she is not the problem. The problem is, is everyone else. And, and it's just so interesting how, um, by adopting this, we're Duke, we're progressive, we're enlightened, we're, we, we've sort of solved this problem. Look, we sent out this book. You're able, as a Duke administrator, to reassure yourself that we've changed. But at the same time, uh, through that reassurance, perhaps feel less obliged to actually invest in some of the changes that are needed. It's, it's so complicated. And, and humans are complicated. Everyone who reads the book reads a different book. But, but I'm so interested in, I just couldn't even fathom um, international students. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, you know, some guy in like Taiwan. I mean, can you, it's like, what have I gotten myself into here? 
Um, so it's a two things can be true simultaneously. It's, it's the Duke's credit and it's amazing and it's to be celebrated that they picked this book and sent it out. But it's also true that the fact that they sent it out doesn't mean that they are still able to really face, uh, you know, the work they have to do. So interesting. So interesting. So. Thank you so much for all of this. It has been a pleasure talking to you. I really Me too, appreciate and it. don't hesitate to reach out. Anything I can do, truly, I would love to help you. Sounds amazing. Thank you so all much. Right. Have a great Thanks, rest of your Caitlin. day. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. These events of racial discourse throughout history have shaped the Duke that Black students see today. The current student body is roughly 7% Black, and there's a very similar percentage for the amount of Black faculty. Students have worked to create spaces for themselves on campus through resources like the Mary Lou Williams Center and the Black Student Alliance, which are prosperous part parts of the Black community here on campus. However, an increase in prevalence doesn't directly correlate with a racial utopia here on campus. Students still face hardship, including negative relationships with peers and faculty members and the lingering ghost of Duke's blatantly racist history. Yet against many odds, black students like myself have created a strong force of community to be reckoned with as we continue to push for increased representation and opportunities for black students on campus. History is a superpower and it allows us to have a better understanding of the places around us and the way in which they have shaped the landscape we see today. It's important to recognize that we'll never know the entirety of a place's past, and it is always critical to keep uncovering the mysteries of the places we frequent. At times, I really do feel conflicted, walking on the Gothic stone created by a black man named Julian Abel, who couldn't attend or even view the university once it was finished because of the color of his skin. But it's also a reminder of how far we as a community have come, and how proud Julian and all of the other black community members would be would be to see me and my peers not just attending, but thriving at this university and continuing to work towards the betterment of this world for our people. There is so much good that we will continue to bring to the world, and I hope that putting a spotlight on these stories is one small way that I can continue to inspire change. Though the Durham Freeway may have physically altered the community of Haiti, it never broke their spirit. And the freeway that was built to try to break down the black community has become a gateway for black excellence to enter Durham from across the globe. This is an example of the tenacity of the black community and the ways in which we will continue to push for a better world for everyone. <laughs>